You know, Christians really should be the happiest people in the world. For we have the most to be happy about. Unlike others that are not sure of the truth of their scriptures, who need to back it up with acts of violence to try and enforce their will upon others, we don't need to do that. You see, the word of God is powerful enough in and of itself. And we know how powerful the word of God is. It's banned in 52 countries. Dictators are terrified of the power of the word of God, such as the force of truth. Christianity is a live, vibrant religion. It's live in the sense that the blade of a sharpened sword is live. The word of God is as sharp as that. But a great many people have a dead Christianity. They don't understand that it's not just about clicking a ticket to try and get to heaven. It's about living a Christian life. It's about walking in the footsteps of the master. For remember... Our master is alive. He is risen. You know, one of the most beautiful words, beautiful verses in the Bible, and the most comforting, is found in Luke chapter 24 and verse 5. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Remember, and let me place this in context. There are some women going to seek out the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had recently been murdered terribly. They were sure he was dead. They had no reason to believe that he was not. The world had sought to destroy him. To take away any victory which he had promised. But this is one of the most joyful verses of the Bible. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not dead. Right now, in the context of our verses, these women are looking for a dead Christ. But as Christians, of course, we know he's alive. He is risen. He is Lord. And we are forgiven. So we should be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. We celebrate a risen Christ. The ruling king. The lord of lords. The sovereign of our souls. But these women at this time. They're looking for a dead Christ. And of course they could not find him. Because he was living. How often have men sought for Christ. Where he could not be found. How sad is the long vigil of Israel's sons and daughters for the Messiah that does not come and never will come as they are looking for him still, not realizing he came and went and will come back again. A few years ago, the chief rabbi in Jerusalem, over a hundred years old, had been searching for the Messiah in scriptures, searching for the Messiah in history, and he was trying to identify him. With all of his accumulated wisdom, he wrote down the name of the only one who could have been the Messiah promised of old. And he instructed that a year after his death, he was making sure he was dead so he didn't get into trouble, they would open it up and reveal that name. And lo and behold, little to our surprise, the name was the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that fits it. But someday they will behold him as the living one. 
and weep and wonder because for so long they vainly sought him in a false ideal among the dead hopes of their earthly national ambitions. They had hoped that the Messiah, when he came, would be a warrior. Well, he is a warrior. They were hoping he would defeat their enemies. He did. In the very best way, he made them his friends. The Lord Jesus was not what they were expecting. But that does not make him any less the Messiah King. The Christ, the Anointed One of God. But there are other religions which have superstitions. Roman superstition paints the Christ with all the hideous and ghastly accompaniments of the crown of thorns, the pallid brow of death, and the wounds from the tomb. But there is no such Christ, you see. You see, he is not here. He is not in the tomb. He is alive. He is not here, but is risen, Luke 24 and verse 6. Another beautiful verse. He is risen. He's alive forevermore. He is risen. He is Lord. The Roman Catholic Church uses a crucifix as the symbol of their religion. But that is not the true symbol of redemption. The crucifix has an idol upon it. That is the cross with the suffering Christ upon it. But that has passed and gone forever. Rather the cross shining in the halo of the glory beyond. And the crown above is the true symbol of Christianity. He has defeated the cross. And he's alive. There's an artist called Thorwaldsen. And he's a great Norwegian sculptor. And he has cut a mar- in marble a group of artistic works known as the cross and the vine in which the outlines of the cross are covered and almost lost in the delicate and luxuriant foliage and hanging clusters of a splendid vine that grows from the foot of the cross. The vine represents the living Christ and the fruits of his resurrection life, obliterating almost the figure of the cross from whose roots all these blessings spring. You see, to many a Christian, or those who would call themselves Christians, Christ is still but a dead Christ, or at least an historic Christ, an idea, but not a living and present reality, as is taught quite clearly in the New Testament. The meaning of the resurrection is that Jesus is alive. He is the living head of Christianity. He is the one to whom belongs his church. He is revealed as the Messiah King of all. Do you know him as the living one? Yes, we remember his sacrifice when we take the Lord's Supper every week. We remember his suffering. We remember his death. But let us never forget his resurrection. He's alive. He reigns. He rules. He has not gone away. To the terror of dictators and those who are anti-Christ across this world. But as we look back to our scriptural verses, we see this sad cry of Mary. In John twenty thirteen. she says, They have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. 
you will observe in the account of the walk to Emmaus that Jesus Christ was not recognized by the two disciples until they received him into their house and sat down to eat and drink with him. It was then that he was manifested to them. And as we read in Luke chapter 24 and verse 31, they know him and he vanished out of their sight. While he merely walked with them by the way, they did not know him. But when they took him into the intimacy of their hearts, into their home, it was then he was revealed to them as the living one, the living Christ, the one who had died upon the cross and who had risen from the dead. What power, what majesty, what a testament to the truth of the gospel. And so as you open the door of your heart and obey him, you too will also know him, the risen one, the supreme epoch of every Christian life. All that you dream of in a Messiah is found within him and only within him. The great tradition from the earthly to the heavenly. From the human, sorry, the great transition from the earthly to the heavenly. From the human to the divine. From the struggles and failures of man's finite strength to the infinite possibilities of God's best. Yes, many have a dead Christianity. But the question of our text may be addressed to those who are following a dead Christianity. For a dead Christ brings a dead Christianity, a dead life. Not one that's living and vibrant. Far too often you will go into a church congregation and the people in it will have a face so dour on them you would think they're going to a funeral. But we're not going to a funeral when we go to worship. We're going to a remembrance of the victory of Christ. That he is risen. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He has led the forces of darkness away to make a show of them. The poet Coleridge's dream of the ancient mariner talks about a phantom ship floating upon a silent ocean with a dead man at the helm. A dead man on the bridge and dead men standing at their posts as if frozen by one final fatal breath into ice or marble. It's only to read a picture of many a church with a dead man in the pulpit and a dead man in the pews and the entire ritual that of a solemn funeral. The tasks and fasts and penances and ceremonial rites which constitute the religion of many people are but the ornaments of the dead. The grave clothes which the master threw away that morning when he rose. Yes, we should be the happiest people on earth. Worshipping God in all reverence. And with all joy within our hearts. And with hope. And knowing the superiority of our God. But those who have twisted the gospel message. Are not practicing Christianity of the Bible. The true religion of Jesus. Robes itself in garments of love. And liberty and joy. And goes forth to live for others. And to bless the world. It is remarkable that no mention is made of the Lord's apparel after his resurrection. We read of his seamless robe left behind him when they nailed him to the cross. And of the linen which they wrapped about him at his burial. 
which they found after the resurrection, neatly folded and laid away in the tomb. But nothing is said about his raiment as he appeared again and again to them. And so true Christianity does not need to be dressed in a cowl, the cowl of a monk or the vestments of the choir or the elaborate ceremonials of ritualism and Romanism. Brother Mike, we do not need you to walk down the aisle swinging these bells with smells. Isn't that a good thing? There you go. Brother John, we don't need you standing up here with a little bell going ding, ding, ding at the Lord's Supper so that it's magically turned into his actual body and blood of Christ. And then you ring it again so it's miraculously turned back in, back into bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? What if the bell doesn't work? You're in trouble then, aren't you? Well, where's that in the Bible? Can you show it to me? Because you know, you know what? If it's not in the Bible, I'm not going to do it. We're not going to do it. This is our authority. And Christ's church is built upon the word of God in its totality. No, the Lord's church is not a Passover church. We don't pass over the verses which might be awkward for some. The truth is the truth. And it is the truth of God. And we hold it in all reverence and all gravity. Understanding the weight of it. The strength of it. No, the appropriate dress for the Lord's bride is the garment of praise, the mantle of love, the girdle of service as it goes forth in the glory of resurrection life and heavenly love to represent her master in this world of sin and sorrow. And we stand like the ancient vision of Solomon, bright as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. Song of Solomon 6 and verse 10. God gives us this true Christian adorning and heavenly vestments compared with which our fashions are but filthy rags. Isaiah 64 verse 6. Because I guarantee you, God is not impressed with the $10 million hat. question of our text might be asked of those who are seeking a spiritual life but they're seeking it among the dry bones of fallen human beings O ye that are trying to improve yourselves to reform your lives to build up your characters and to cultivate the fruits and grace of higher ethics and calling this religion that's not religion That's man-made self-aggrandizing self-righteousness. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Luke 24 and verse 5. Are they not seeking the living among the dead? For the worship they're offering is dead worship. It's not acceptable to God. Yes, you may be able to play a guitar like Eric Clapton, but that's not authorized worship. Play it but not in the worship service. There's a time and a place for everything. Human nature is dead and beyond the power of self-improvement. All we have seen in the world since the beginning has been a steady decline, decline in morality. Where is the honoring of God? Christ Jesus told us to love one another. Christ Jesus came to seek us. He came to save the world. Christ Jesus had no lies within him. 
He was pure. He was innocent. Let me correct that. He is pure. He is innocent. He is reigning. And yet his name is used as a swear word in the world. When was the last time you heard someone hit their thumb and go, Oh Buddha. Or Oh Muhammad. (gasps) Shock. Horror. And yet they use the name of the one who died on the cross for their sins. We have seen around the world people pulling down statues of men who were slavers. And these statues were put up as monuments to these men who made their fortunes from slavery. And yet there are monuments all over the world built to a man who made his fortune, built his religion upon slavery. His name is Muhammad. Are the mosques going to be pulled down? And yet, it is the same thing. The question these people do you wish to remain dead to Christ or do you wish to come to Christ on his terms you see God has simply provided for the burial and the resurrection life through the risen Christ the burial of the old man and the resurrection life of the new that is found in Christ the sentence of death has passed upon all man's best endeavors and the only hope of our race, the human race, is the new birth and the resurrection found only through Jesus Christ. And it is interesting to trace through the scriptures the manifest truth that the first generation has always been a failure and that it is the second birth that triumphs and remains. The first Adam fell. The second Adam achieved the destiny of humanity. Eve's first son cruelly disappointed her. The second born and the third became the seed of promise. The old world passed out in the flood and the new world emerged under the arch of the rainbow on Mount Ararat as a type of the great resurrection which Christ was to bring. Abraham's first son, Ishmael, had to be cast out and in Isaac, the second son, his seed was called. Esau, Esau the elder, gave place to Jacob the younger. David, the younger son of Jesse, was exalted above all of his brethren as the Lord's anointed. In their journey to the land of promise, Israel's first generation failed. The second generation, consisting of their little children, was chosen to enter in while the bones of their fathers were buried in the sands of the desert. All except Jacob, uh, all except Joshua and Caleb, who knew the strength of God. And you know, I think if those two men would have been left alone to their own devices, they would have invaded the promised land by themselves with the force of God behind them. That was good. Even nature itself teaches us that a transformation must take place before the crawling worm can emerge from the chrysalis and become a soaring butterfly. And the seed has to die and rot in the ground and from its bosom comes forth the new, the new seed. That new germ that will bud and blossom and fill the earth with fruit. The tree that has but, well, that was but, that has but a natural birth must be grafted and cut down and wedded to the new branch before it can bear the best fruit. You see, all nature is a parable of this mystery of mysteries. And if we look at the lives of some of the typical characters we find in the Holy Bible, 
we shall see some people, we shall see within these people's lives the same principle running through them. Jacob had to pass through the narrow gates of his conflict at Penel in order to come forth a new man with a new name, Israel, a prince, a prince with God. Job had to find out that all his natural goodness was insufficient. And in the keen light of God's revealing cry, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes, Job 42 and verse 6. He had to do this before there came to him a new life and righteousness and blessing from God. Isaiah had to see himself as all unclean and then receive the cleansing coal of fire, which sent him forth empowered for the great prophetic ministry. Simon Peter had to fall so far that he broke his own proud neck in the fall and then came back forth from the wreck and the shame with a new and divine strength which enabled him to die at last with downward head on his master's cross. Paul had to find out that all his righteousness was as dross. It was as filth and dirt and had to be clothed. He had to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone and nothing else. And he made this his watchword in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. This is the meaning of resurrection, of resurrection life, of the joy of being a Christian. Christ lives within me. Have you entered into it and come forth with that death-born life? There are many who have a dead humanity. The question of our text might be asked if the people that are teaching in our day the sufficiency of earthly culture, of earthly education, of fine art humanitarianism to lift the race to its true plane and potential and educate it out of its depravity and degeneracy have succeeded. Brethren, they've been trying it for a long time. It has not worked. Back home in the Isles where I come from, they decided to have an experiment. They moved some people who were constantly in trouble with the police. They moved them into an area which was considered a good area. And they thought, oh, these, these people will be lifted up. Not at all. Within a few years, the whole area was lifted down. You know why? Because it's easier to pull someone off a chair than to pull someone up. And if we had the time, I could challenge Brother John to do that right now. You'd have a job pulling me up, brother. (laughs) But that's what happens. That's what happens in the world. You see, the world thinks it knows better than God. A great many people in the world think they are God. They have this strange idea. The whole world revolves around them. Well, they're going to get a surprise when they stand before the Holy One. I often think of the words of Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union. When asked about religion, he said, there is but one God and Stalin is his name. Well, (laughs) he got a shock when he stood before the king of Israel. Can you imagine his face? The face of Hitler? The face of those enemies of Christ? The face of Herod? The face of the Sanhedrin, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Of all those who opposed him? And then can you imagine the face of those who believed they loved him? Those who believed that they loved him and obeyed him? To me it's horrifying 
the thoughts that he might say, I don't know you. How can we be sure he won't say that? By getting to know him. And we know him by this, by God's word. The world as we see it today needs no sadder commentary on it than this stupendous folly, than the late messages of a man called Herbert Spencer. He gave this message to the world just before he died, telling men of the best light that had come to him from the researches of 80 years, and then adding that the outlook for him as he faced the great crisis of life, of death, was dark and depressing indeed. The world has tried it, has tried it many times to get to God without Jesus. Culture can never do more for humanity than it did for ancient Egypt, Greece and Babylonia, or for America in the brightest hour of its accomplishments. But alas, alas, these were the darkest hours in the records of human crime. To turn against God, to deny his victory, to deny his glory. Yes, there is no doubt that the achievements of the Egyptians are to be lauded. There were great, there were many. The achievements of the Greeks, of the Babylonians, of the Romans, of America, put the first man on the moon. But brethren, the first man's footprints on the moon are nothing compared to the footprints of the God-man upon the earth. Yes, why seek ye the living among the dead? Humanity is like the dry bones of Ezekiel's vision, a moral cemetery with nothing that can lift it but the omnipotent touch of divine resurrection of Christ Jesus. For without him we live in a lifeless world. Without God, without Christ, without the Bible and the promises there, what have we to look forward to? What does secular humanism promise us? An empty grey, a meaningless life, a meaningless existence, coming from nothing, going to nothing, signifying nothing, teaching that we are just an accident of slimyology. Brethren, if you teach a generation or successive generation of children that you are only an accident of evolution, that you are only an accident of slimyology, if you teach them that we're just animals, why on earth would you be surprised when they act like animals and not like angels? The world's morality is nothing compared to the morality of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. It is a lifeless world. Well, the question of our text might be addressed by the people that are looking for happiness in this doomed world and trying to find their true life among the dead ashes of earthly pleasure. God says of such a person, he feedeth on ashes, Isaiah 44 and verse 20. I know of a man back home in Ireland who had, he lived in these flats, these, these apartment blocks. I guess you could call them the projects. And he sought pleasure in the world. He took drugs. He enjoyed taking drugs. He started off with something small. He started off like as an alcoholic. Then he started going on to marijuana. Then he was on cocaine. Then he was on heroin. This man's wife died of a drug overdose. This man had three children. This man's white skin, and believe you me, he's from Ireland, so he's really, really white. We're so white, we disappear on the beach at the sands down there. That's how bad, that's how white we are. 
but his skin was yellow with jaundice. Almost every vein in his body had collapsed. He'd gone blind in one eye from sticking a needle in it. And he had full-blown AIDS. And he couldn't stop it. He couldn't stop taking the drugs. They were expensive, but he couldn't stop. He couldn't stop stealing to get them. He didn't care. He just had to get that pleasure. But that pleasure was his death. That pleasure led to his death. All that joy was just ashes. And he left three parentless children behind him. You see, ashes, sins, the world's pleasures are just the wreckage of organic matter that has been consumed and the substance burned out of it. The world has nothing to give you but ashes. The world's heart has gone out since God has gone out. The righteousness is lost. Will love make earth the heaven? Read the records of modern divorce. Have you heard of the term a starter marriage? That's what marriage has become. Get married, you get bored, you move on. And now they want to change it so it's men and men, women and women, men and dogs. I think it's very interesting that some of the people I've spoken to about that who are in favour of non-biblical unions don't make me say marriage because it's not marriage, it's defined by God. They will say, oh, that's okay. Love is love. Let it be. But I've said, well, what if your husband wants to marry another woman and keep you as well? Oh, that's different. So you can't have three. Why are you being prejudiced? Why are you being so small-minded and bigoted to not allow men and women to have 50 wives, 60 wives, marry a banana tree, marry the clone of Elvis Presley and take Grayson? You see, they want to go so far as that would please them. But that is what sin is. Selfish. Ultimately selfish. The world worships fame too. And will fame last forever? Look at the overturning of all the tables of human ambition. Is wealth an antidote for every human ill? Look at the story of the colossal fortunes of our day and the disappointment, the oppression, the countless calamities that follow in their train. The story has not been told, but lived 10,000 times, and to the end of the chapter, the conclusion will still be the same. Expressed in the language of human philosophy and experience, it is found in the last words of one of Earth's most successful men. In Ecclesiastes 1 verse 14, King Solomon, who had everything, richest man in the world, I have been everything, and everything is nothing, he said. Expressed in the language of the Bible and the testimony of the prince of earthly pleasure, power, and even wisdom, he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and vexation of spirit. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 14, it was nothing. All the pleasures of the world were nothing, for he was still empty in his heart. You see, there's a God-shaped hole in our heart, and it can only be filled by the God of the Bible. You see, he must sit upon the throne of our heart, of our heart. The Bible heart is our intellect, our minds. He must be the center of it. 
We must turn from the ash heaps of the desert of spiritual desolation. And that's what you find. To turn away from the only garden it offers. It's not a garden of heavenly delights or paradise. It is an open grave. In John 4 and verse 14, we read these wonderful words. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, uh, the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John 4 and verse 14. Everlasting life. Fulfillment of hope. This world is full of dead hopes. The question of our text speaks to the souls that are sitting in despair amid the dead hopes of their failures and their disappointments. But the message from the gospel is this, to rise up those who are despairing. Bury our past in the past. Begin anew with that Sunday dawn. And know that the resurrection means for every discouraged man and woman that God has established a great bankrupt court where all the debts and losses of the past can be consigned to eternal oblivion and you can start anew with a heart as fresh and a hope as bright as if your life had at this very moment just dropped from heaven. And you are not and never would be again the same man or woman as he or she who wrought the sin, the shame, the failure, the disappointment, the wreck that lies behind you. You can leave it at the cross. And you can rise up and take the fortune that he has purchased for you. And that is what he is waiting to give you as the gift of his free and sovereign grace. <coughs> Someone tells of an old man that was riding through a country district when he was accosted by a native who asked him for a ride. He soon began to talk to the man and found that he was not saved. So the native asked him after a while what his business was in those parts and he said, I represent a very large estate that has just been divided by the will of the testator and some of the heirs live around here and I'm looking for them. Their family name begins with the letter S. And they are a very large family. They're a huge family. Immediately the man became greatly interested. Why, he said, I know some of them. They're the Smiths, aren't they? No, said the man, as he looked at him earnestly in the face. Their name is Sinner. And I think you're one of them. And I have come to bring you a fortune. Dear friends, that is the meaning of the resurrection morning. The friend who loved you before you were born has paid all your debts, has discharged your liabilities, has blotted out your past, and he brings you an inheritance of love and hope and everlasting joy, which you may freely have by accepting his grace and giving yourself to him in loving return. And if you love him, you will do what he says, won't you? And finally... The angels bear this message to some who are living among the tombs of their earthly bereavements and thinking of their loved ones as dead, gone forever. But they are not here. Why seek ye the living among the dead? 
if they are Christians. The sad story is told of two little children. After the death of their mother, they seen her being laid in the ground. They were found digging a hole in the garden with their feeble hands. When asked why, they explained that they were digging away to heaven to find mother. Someone had told them when they saw her body lowered into the dark, cold ground that she had gone to heaven and they thought that heaven was somewhere in the ground. Alas, how many hearts are truly buried there, living dead lives. Some who call themselves Christians, living a dead Christianity, not understanding the hope and the glory and the gift and the resurrection and the promise given by God. This is the very opposite of what God has intended. He has taken your loved ones and they are with him forever if they have been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. He has taken your loved ones to lift your hearts to that heavenly home where they are rejoicing now and to help us realize that world which is the true goal of all our hopes and the only changeless home where parted friends and family shall meet again. Yes, why seek ye the living among the dead? Arise and live, live with him in the things above. And so we might apply at greater length this searching question to all the things that we are vainly searching for below the skies. To lift up our eyes, to lift up your hearts, to look forward and remember that the times of restitution of all things, Acts 3.21, are to come, not here, but in the by and by when Jesus comes. All the sad things will go. All that went wrong will be made right. Even much that we have prayed for, believed for and spiritually attained in part only is waiting for us over there. Then shall come back to us all we have sacrificed and surrendered here. You see, God is putting upon each of us That question, will we obey him? Will we follow after him? Will we seek the living among the dead? Will we remember that he is risen and the promise to us? Then indeed in the future, it shall be true that he that sits upon the throne of grace, that mercy seat, shall say, behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21 and verse 5. Not I make all new things, but I make all things new. New beginnings. A new life that will last for all eternity. Dear friend, are you living in this new world and for this coming age? You see, there are two races in this world. And it's not how mankind divides humanity. These two races crossing the narrow path of time. One is the Adamic race. The other is the Christian race. One is the earthly race. The other is the heavenly people. Those of the kingdom of heaven. One is doomed to remain among the dead. The other is pressing on to immortality and glory. And life everlasting. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 48 and 49, we read, As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Beloved, friends, come from among the dead. Leave the dead life, the dead hopes, the dead forms of Christianity that do not embrace the true life-giving power of the gospel. Come from among the dead and live forevermore in Christ Jesus. This is only done through obedience to him. In Acts 22, 16, we're told to not tarry, to not wait. Arise. You see, that's an action. We have to actually do something. We have to choose. And we choose through our obedience. Arise and be baptized. In the Greek, the word baptized is baptismo. And it means a complete, a complete immersion in water. Symbolize our complete forgiveness of sin. Our complete dedication to Christ. Our complete obedience to the commands of Christ. To be baptized. And will you call upon the name of the Lord? That is, will you trust in him? Will you trust and follow him? Leave the dead life behind and embrace real life in the active force that Christianity truly is. A kingdom dedicated to bringing good to this world, to bringing hope where there's hopelessness, to bringing love where there is hate, to bringing unity where there is disunity to bringing loyalty to the one true king that can never be dethroned. Will you follow Jesus the Messiah today? If you're not a Christian, I beg you with all of my heart and in all sincerity, obey Christ today while yet you may. And if you are a Christian, remember our Lord is alive. We have a living hope. We have so much to be joyful for. Rejoice in that knowledge. And if you need our help or our prayers, we are here for you. And he will never leave you as we stand and sing the song of invitation. Thank you. Why do you wait?